The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Podcast episode 241 for the week of December 6th, 2010. And yes, this show was actually recorded December 9th, 2010, but it is for the week of December 6th, 2010. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me is Gene the Kermit McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey Sawyer, we've got uh, we've got some uh, big news here to cover. So uh, uh, my apologies in advance for the uh, uh, for the throat here, but um, we'll get through it. That's all right. That's why I threw the Kermit into your name there. So <laughs> I know it's not easy being green. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> well, then let's go and say hello to Mark Ratterman. Hi, Mark. I appreciate the honor and the privilege of being here. Let's roll on. We got a lot to talk about. You're not kidding. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into the first topic. And that was last week we all discussed STS-133. We all guessed that the Space Shuttle Discovery would launch on STS-133 probably in February instead of December 17th. Well, NASA went out and surprised absolutely nobody by delaying the launch from December 17th, 2010, to its new launch date of February 3rd, 2011. And Gene, I believe that uh, we actually have some reasoning behind why they delayed it, right? Yes, sir. The the game plan is to go ahead and get some further insight into what exactly happened uh, on November 5th during tanking and uh, what really, really caused the, uh, the stringers to go ahead and crack. Um, we have a, a little clip from the press conference on December 3rd from Bill Gerstenmeier, who uh, went into some detail on, on uh, what the game plan is going forward. So if you can go ahead and run that for, for us over there, please. There's basically two things that we would like to go do from a test standpoint. Uh, we'd like to see if we can um, replicate what we think the most leading cause is of the failure. Uh, so there'll be a, a setup at Marshall or, or, or New Orleans where we'll actually uh, build up a stringer panel the way we would have for, ta- for, a, uh, for a tank. Um, then we'll actually put some defects in, some uh, edge of manufacturing tolerances into that device, and then actually load it up and see if we can replicate a, the crack that we saw during cryo-loading during the, the tanking. So that will be one test that we'll get done. And then we'd also like to do a test down at the Cape where we actually uh, load the tank with cryogenic uh, propellant and then actually put some instrumentation on the tank, put some strain gauges, thermocouples, some other devices on the tank to actually monitor how the tank actually loads up. And that will serve to validate the math models and help us to better understand the environment that we see during loading and how that relates to the environment we see during launch. 
So we'll kind of approach it two ways. First of all, understand uh, what could have caused the crack uh, from a kind of a root cause standpoint. Instead of just looking at the data at hand, we'll actually do two tests to do that. One will look at the, the loading of the panel itself and the manufacturing defects. The other test will look at the loading conditions actually on the tank out at the pad. So we think between those two tests, we should get enough information that we can actually move forward and, and head in the right direction. Now, once again, let's just stress that this is no earlier than February 3rd, 2011 is the date. And as well with this, that means that the Space Shuttle Endeavor, which was originally scheduled to launch at the end of February 2011, is now scheduled to launch on STS-134 no earlier than, no joke, April 1st. Yeah, again, they're they're playing this close to the vest, Sawyer, and it, I think it's uh, it's probably a good thing that they're doing it. Um, they want to fully understand what exactly went, went what went wrong during tanking that on uh, November fifth. They want to get a good handle on what what's going on. They still have you know one flight left, you know, two maybe on the books. Uh, so again, with that, you want to make sure that you've got all your eyes dotted and t's crossed. Spaceflight is a is a very risky business, and uh, there's no real margin for error here. So. Um, they want to be careful and make sure that uh, they basically end the shuttle program on on really really high notes. So uh, uh, hats off to NASA for doing their due diligence with this. Exactly, spaceflight is meant for the professional governmental agencies, or is it? With that, we'll lead into our next topic, which was that SpaceX successfully launched its Falcon 9 slash Dragon mission. And that was actually on Wednesday, December 8th, 2010. The launch occurred at 10.43 in the morning, lifting off from Launch Complex 40 at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Cape Canaveral, Florida, just a little bit away from the actual shuttle launch pads. It later returned after making two orbits and splashed into the Pacific Ocean at about 2 o'clock p.m. all times Eastern Standard Time. So... This is groundbreaking. This is the first commercial space flight to actually go into orbit and return back to Earth. Pretty spectacular, huh? Yeah, really, indeed. Uh, space Exploration Technologies, or SpaceX, just went ahead and joined a very elite group. That of that elite group is the United States government, the government of Russia, and the government of China, Those are the, and a few others. That have gone ahead and uh, and launched something, launched a payload into space. Mind you, however, everything has been, I've said, has been government. The the big deal here is that this is the first time a private industry, private company, has gone ahead and sent something into orbit. So not a, a small feat at all. And I think it's it's going to be opening up some doors. Yeah, I mean NASA has actually an entire program dedicated to this, and it's actually called. COTS, COTS standing for Commercial Orbital Transportation Services. And uh, it's a big step. And as Elon Musk, who's basically the head of SpaceX, even said, quote, we would not be here without the help of NASA. I cannot emphasize that enough, which is something that I actually found interesting. We wouldn't be here without the help of, you know, uh, this is not, this is, people might sometimes might think, well, this is sort of like, SpaceX being being so great, but we would not be here without without the help of NASA, and that that uh, I cannot emphasize that enough. Um, 
And um, you know, so, <clears throat> and then of course, the work that SpaceX has done um, with with our craft, with with Dragon and Falcon Nine, the the, the core technologies uh, again were were developed, uh, you know, by by NASA, um, you know, over over decades, and we've we built upon them. And we, but uh, I guess you know, to use the a phrase that's been used many times before, we are only here because we stand on the on the shoulders of giants. So did anybody else find that interesting? Well, um, you know, again, the, the COTS program was uh, started back in 2006 uh, by, uh, I believe it was Mike Griffin over at NASA. And uh, it, it is now, you know, basically coming to fruition now. Um, it, what SpaceX is, is deciding to do here, I think, uh, or what, what NASA has started, should I say, is uh, hopefully a, a whole new cottage industry here of uh, several companies getting into space and hopefully opening up the doors and um, allowing routine access to sp- to at least low Earth orbit. Um, so we'll just see what uh, what transpires from the seed that was planted today. Or should I say this week? <laughs> no, actually, it's not quite a seed that was planted. In fact, SpaceX kept the payload that they had inside their Dragon capsule private. They did not tell anybody what was inside that capsule until today, December 9th, 2010. On this date, they announced what was in it. Previously, they had hinted that what was inside had to do with a Monty Python reference. So for any of our Monty Python fans out there, you're thinking, what was it? Was it a dead parrot? No, it turns out, if you've ever seen the skit with the cheese shop, it was a wheel of cheese that was launched into space inside. Now, it was actually bolted in in a special container... But on top of that container was an image of the top-secret film poster showing a cow wearing galoshes, a sketch from the movie. I found that kind of funny. Uh, just some tongue, tongue-in-cheek humor. There were also some, some commemorative patches that were also in the cargo hold and um, in, on board Dragon. Um, so... Uh, uh, you know, it, it it was kind of fun and games, but it was also, uh, uh, I guess these these commemorative patches are going to go to, to folks uh, that have worked really really hard on on the project. So, uh, again, hats off to everybody that did so. At the uh, press conference, one of the things that uh, just a couple couple quick ones that uh, that I did observe is uh, Elon was asked about the humorous uh, payload, and he said he didn't want to reveal what the humorous payload was because he was afraid that it would steal headlines and uh, he also made the statement and you can tell that he's a little disorganized in some of his uh, what he's talking about but he said it's hard to be articulate when your mind is blown but in a very good way and one of the clips that we've got here for you has to do with what he talks about on the dragon capsule as future plans as a propulsive landing. So we'll play that and see what you think. But the, the next generation um, uh, Dragon, the one, the, the Crew Dragon, uh, we're, we're actually going to be aiming for a, a propulsive landing 
with, with, with gear, kind of like an eagle landed on the moon. Um, the, uh, and, and we'll still have the parachutes as a backup, but it's going to be a precision landing. Uh, you can literally land on a helipad, on something the size of a helipad, um, uh, propulsively with gear, refuel, and take off again. That, 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 that'll be the, the next generation uh, dragon. Um, it was important for us to test the fundamentals um, with, a, with an ocean landing to, to make sure we could control uh, things to a precision location um, and uh, t- to test the heat shield and the fundamentals. You, you, you've got to uh, make sure that if something does go wrong, uh, that nothing bad's going to happen. Um, but but I, I want to be clear that we are definitely going to be pushing the technology envelope beyond what, what you've seen here. So basically this means that essentially even though the landing is similar to a combination of Soyuz slash Apollo, it can land, even though the test landed in water, it can land on land just using propulsion. Yeah, this is a second generation dragon that he's talking about. It's right now still on the drawing board. Um, it kind of, in my eyes, when I first heard it, you know, I was, I, we were, um, I was listening in on this and, 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 Throwing it out on the uh, throwing the, the minutes out on the uh, Twitter, the Talking Space Twitter feed, um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the uh, the old uh, DCX. If you recall, that was a single stage to orbit thing. But, it, but the idea of, of that was to land, you know, propulsively, and um, to just I don't want to you know go ahead and fo- take the focus off of. Uh, SpaceX, but uh, that's what Mazden, you know, uh, Dave Mazden and Mazden Aerospace is also trying to do with uh, their landing craft to have a propulsive landing. So, um, you know, if 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 they could pull that off for, for Generation Two of the Dragon, then more power to them. On our next clip, uh, the question was asked as to how the Dragon capsule did, and on this clip, we'll hear about the heat shield, and uh, it's rather interesting to. To realize how, uh, how how current that technology is today. Oh, I should say the, the, the performance of the heat shield was, was spectacular. Um, it, it barely it barely noticed the, the reentry, uh, and um, it, it, in, in an excess of caution, we actually designed the heat shield to not just handle um, uh, Earth orbit reentry, but to actually be able to handle a worst case a worst case off nominal lunar reentry. And, and Mars reentry, so it's an extremely capable heat shield. Um, the, the, the Pico was originally developed uh, at uh, at NASA Ames, and then we worked with NASA Ames um, to, to develop a slight, a, a, an improvement on Pico called Pico X, uh, and um, and so and and with this with this reentry, we were able to calibrate the effectiveness of the heat shield, and I'd say I'm highly confident, in fact, extre- <laughs> de- definitive. That the heat shield could take Luna and even a Mars reentry, uh, which opens up a lot of possibilities. I think, um, you know, as, as potentially um, a uh, an, an alternative to the Orion. So basically, we're talking room temperature here. Now that that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's almost like how with the shuttle heat shield tiles, you could stick them in fire, take them out, and they're safe to touch. But for a capsule like that, that's pretty amazing compared to the asbestos that they used back in the 70s. 
Yeah, uh, Mark, didn't they say that there was a little bit more shielding on there than was really, really, really required? Or what they thought was really, really required? And then, you know, they're going to do an analysis and then try to figure out what the happy medium is with that and um, kind of sort of, uh, you know, uh, come to a happy medium on, on, on the next flight. So um, it, if, if anybody's, you know, uh, if anybody heard uh, otherwise, please let me know. But at least I, I kind of sort of remember hearing something like that. Yeah, that's true. And let me throw a uh, acronym out there that is referred to there. It's called PICA, P-I-C-A, and that stands for Phenolic Impregnated Carbon Ablate, Ablator, Ablator Heat Shield. So uh, they've chosen PICA for its proven ability. So just wanted to get rid of an acronym from blocking us from understanding things. Gwen Shotwell, I guess, uh, the president of SpaceX, had some very interesting things to say, too, during uh, the post-flight press conference. It was just sort of a, a sort of tying together the, uh, um, you know, the specifics of the flight, Mark, if you want to go into that a little bit. Yeah, I found her part very interesting because she ran through some of the numbers and some of the some of the performance of of what they saw. And uh, her clip is one of our longer ones, so be patient. I think you'll find it interesting, though. I wanted to do a brief uh, recap of the mission uh, and then talk about uh, uh, about some of the the details on orbit. We did lift off at 10:43 Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we followed uh, the nominal mission profile. Uh, we had first stage shutdown on time. Stage separation was nominal. Second stage engine start. Uh, nose cone jettison at about uh, 3 minutes and 37 seconds into the mission. Uh, second stage cutoff, uh, nominal as well. Uh, nominal separation of the Dragon spacecraft. Uh, and then we had our on-orbit operations, and you guys had some questions about what that meant on Monday. Uh, we did maintain attitude control, thermal control. Our comms program worked brilliantly. Uh, we had connectivity with uh, the Cape Ground Station, Wallops Ground Station, Australia Ground Station in Australia, uh, and Bermuda as well. I believe Bermuda. No, not Bermuda, sorry. Uh, we also had full TDRS coverage, both omni and directional. Uh, and the directional TDRS required uh, pretty specific pointing of Dragon uh, in order to maintain that link. And uh, we achieved that, we maintained it, and uh, it really worked uh, flawlessly. Uh, we began the deorbit burn at two, uh, two hours and 32 minutes into the mission. Uh, we finished that deorbit burn uh, slightly early. Um, the reentry phase began at two hours and 58 minutes uh, into the mission. Our drogue chutes deployed uh, nominally, three mains deployed nominally as well. By the way, we achieved an eight meter per second descent speed, which is, uh, as Elon mentioned, quite, uh, quite comfortable from a landing perspective. Uh, we, uh, we, we believed we would, we projected we would have our water landing at three minutes and 19, sec or excuse me, three hours and 19 minutes into the mission. We actually did it in three hours, 19 minutes and 52 seconds, which was awesome. Um, I've got some very preliminary data on the landing. I had heard in the control center that we landed within 10 kilometers of the landing point. I saw a communication from our team to the Air Force said we were within 800 meters. I'll confirm that, but uh, that was awfully nice to see. Our landing ellipse was uh, 60 by 20 kilometers, and we were well, well inside of that. 
So uh, all around, I, uh, I wanted to thank the 1,200 men and women at SpaceX uh, who helped achieve this uh, really extraordinary mission. Uh, NASA, of course, Elon spent some time with that, and I'll, I'll, let, I'll let that go. Also thank our other mission partners. The Air Force 45th Space Wing was uh, uh, enormously helpful for this mission. Uh, helped a pretty quick recycle, as you guys were aware, um, and then the FAA for the licensing effort that we had. I'll tell you what impressed me when I heard it when they talked about the uh, Dragon capsule's landing is how close it was to the target zone. They said some of their initial reports they got back was that it was within 800 meters of their target. Uh, I believe they had a... Uh, a target box that uh, apparently was way bigger than they needed. And uh, also the fact that it could have landed with one parachute and uh, that they had three good shoots for landing. Do you think that was a poke at the Ares 1X, anybody? Of course it was. And all through the, the conference, if, and if, forgive me if I'm wrong, um, I just it, it's just an observation. Um, Elon was, was sort of you know, praising NASA right and left for all the assistance and all all the all the, the, the help that uh, all the technical assistance that uh, NASA was able to give SpaceX for the endeavor. Um, but by the same token, too, I think he was kind of you know poking some jabs that not only the the, the Ares One X, but uh, he he poked a, a real big uh, stick in Orion's cage as uh, things moved on but uh um w with uh, uh ms shotwell's comments this is the stuff that i guess you know, we really really wanted to hear about the spacecraft performance um because uh, what i what struck me weird about the coverage was that uh, first off kudos to um the folks that did the uh the launch coverage they did a very good job as opposed to the last spacex flight they they really did seriously they, they kept everything going uh during the uh the hold that they had uh when they got that erroneous uh uh signal uh from uh, uh i guess it was a piece of ordinance you know i guess it was a piece of ordinance um that had uh, sent off a, or a computer that sent off an erroneous signal controlling a piece of order ordinance on, on board the spacecraft which is used for uh just in case you know things go wrong and you have to go ahead and uh and uh detonate the the spacecraft uh you could do that um uh, they did a remarkable job. You know, they, they were giving updates every 15 minutes, basically the way NASA television would, would during a shuttle flight and so on. So uh, hats off to them. What I didn't like and um, what I caught with uh, a tweet from, from Miles O'Brien as well, he felt the same way, um, was that uh, they were they cut off the, the, the coverage just as the mission was getting started. Um, in order to get updates about the mission, we would have to, you know, check back on on the SpaceX website or through their Twitter feed, which I thought was, you know, a, a little bit on the lame side when when you consider the magnitude of, of this particular flight and and what it was really all about. And um, I, I, you know, I guess I can I could chalk that up to possibly a, a manpower issue. Um, on Monday's press conference. Uh, when shot, uh, when Shotwell also alluded to the same thing, Bill Harwood kind of sort of asked that question as well, as far as transparency was concerned. I could have hugged him for saying that. Um, and uh, uh, Ms. Shotwell basically said, "We're not. We're just getting our act together. Just bear with us. We're not trying to 
to muddle the thing. We realize that you folks are trying to get our story out, and we do appreciate it. But uh, it's not, you know, it, it, we may not be uh, be forthcoming, but it's not through want of uh, of being forthcoming. They're really trying to get their act together. So hats off to them in that respect. Eventually, they'll get it. Yeah, at first I was wondering if it was because of if they were trying to hide something. I mean, I know one of their engines actually did fail while they were in orbit, but it was still within nominal limits. But yeah, I mean, I'll I'll you know, some people are saying, well, they're trying to play close to the vest because this was indeed a first flight for the Dragon. Yeah, okay, I can I could buy that to to an extent because if you I'll I'll run the um, I'll run the uh, the years back a little bit um, and mention STS one. That was done in full transparency, and it was the first flight of the space shuttle with, period, with with, with not not just with with humans on board. It was the first flight, period, and we we got to see everything from the the tiles that that were off of the uh, the two uh, uh, orbital maneuvering system pods to to any other little anomaly that uh, that happened during that flight but we also witnessed a perfect landing as well and John Young walking around the vehicle you know as excited as a as a five-year-old on Christmas morning so um, you know again you they've got to learn a little bit about uh, about dealing with dealing with with us press critters however I don't want to make it seem like um you know, lowering their accomplishment at all. I mean, honestly, I was watching this live. I was actually cheering out loud. I was getting looks from people around me, but I was actually cheering at it. And it was an amazing feat. I mean, you're so used to, you know, NASA, Russia. This is just somebody that said, you know what? I want to build a spacecraft commercially. They partnered up with NASA on it. Like, if we build it, will you use it at the ISS? They're like, sure. And now they're building it, and it was just a regular person who said, I want to build a space rocket, basically, and and did. It, it's big credit to SpaceX and Elon Musk and everybody there. Well, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, detract from what happened, Sawyer, believe me. I mean, what we saw um, uh, yesterday was just a a magnificent achievement and uh, as Mr. Musk had said it's not something that uh, you go in to, to try to make money there are a lot better and quicker ways of doing it than doing this uh, and um, he wants to essentially promote a spacefaring civilization and uh, he's he's doing his part to, part to, uh, to do that so uh, again hats off to him and hats off to everybody that really really worked on this believe me I'm not detracting it it's just just I think they need to learn a few things and they'll get there agree yeah, another, entirely <laughs> uh, another comment on the dragon capsule and these were things that I wasn't aware of but they made the statement uh, Elon did that he said if we would had people on this flight we would have taken them to orbit and returned them safely he said the in the in the future with the dragon capsule there'll be upgrades to life support and a launch escape system he said the cargo version of dragon will support both plants and animals and I never thought about that but that's why they feel that they're close to having a capsule that they can carry crew in and yeah. animals yeah well they have well yeah I mean the the, the, uh, the cargo up to the International Space Station is going to require some you know experiments and yeah indeed they're going to require that 
the, that dragon deliver lab animals and, and plants to the International Space Station. So you want to make sure that those, uh, you know, the, the plants arrive safely and, and, and the critters arrive safer, safely, whatever they may be. And uh, um, there you, you know, so there you have it. So I guess they are, you know, they're knocking on the door. But you do have to be careful with that. I mean, NASA actually was just uh, under attack by PETA and uh, for the possibility of doing radiation tests on monkeys, they called it off. But, I mean, you have to be careful with that. Well, I mean, the, the folks still use live animals right and left. It's not, you know, it's not pretty, but it, it does happen. Mark, you've got some other really interesting clip, clips. One I thought was was um, the next one coming up I thought was really, really interesting where uh, Mr. Musk kind of alluded to the possibility of combining uh, COTS-2, the COTS-2 and COTS-3 mission. Yeah, correct. Uh, we seem to alternate between talking about the, uh, the actual COTS-1 flight that uh, is our headline today to talking about the past to some degree, and here we go talking about the future. You know, in, in, our, in our discussions with NASA, NASA had said that if this flight goes well, then they, they would strongly consider uh, allowing us to go directly to the space station on the next mission. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, that's, that's what uh, uh, NASA will, will allow us to do. Um, and uh, of course, we, we need to carefully examine the data from this mission and make sure that it, it's all good and everything. But, but I'm, I'm optimistic that uh, the next flight will be to the space station. And it's interesting that NASA, uh, also the representative from NASA that was there, the commercial crew and cargo program manager, the man's name is Alan Lindenmoyer, yeah, he said that NASA will give good consideration to this uh, request to go straight to the ISS on their next flight. Yeah, the, the performance of the of the Dragon um, on its first on its maiden voyage was was uh, that good, and, and Elon Musk was saying we've got enough confidence in that we can uh, do a, a rendezvous. And uh, well, we'll we'll see how things go with uh, with all this. Um, I know uh, NASA is going to do their due diligence as far as COTS two is concerned. They may want to go ahead, and I don't know. Mark, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but I don't know if uh, uh, any radar systems were, were tested on this particular uh, test flight, and uh, NASA may have, a, have something to say about that. Um, they probably want to go ahead and do an extensive radar test um, on Dragon to make sure its radar systems are, are, are functioning and doing what they need to do to, to uh, get docking telemetry over, and uh, you know, so I don't know if... Uh, they're going to actually allow that uh, allow that to happen without having that radar test first. But uh, again, that's up to NASA, and um, you know, I'm sure uh, I'm sure Mr. Lyndon Moyer and uh, everybody else over there will will do their due diligence on this one too. What you mean? They don't want uh, SpaceX just crashing into the International Space Station? No, that would be bad. Yeah, why not? You could use a little bump up. <laughs> Oh, and by the way, uh, I don't have the details in front of me, but one of the payloads for our uh, delayed 133 flight has to do with SpaceX and docking. Uh, it's a system that's going to operate during Discovery's approach to the ISS. It's pretty much a hands-off where they just flip a switch and turn it on, 
and they proceed with their docking to the ISS and the information that that they get from this essentially a black box, but it's uh, it's part of future instrumentation for the Dragon capsule will will enable this flight that we're talking about. I almost forgot about that. You're absolutely right, Mark. I remember them mentioning that on the uh, on during one of the the pre-flight uh, press conferences for 133. Somebody mentioned saying, you know, all our interaction, all the, all the astronauts' interaction is just a you know toggle a switch on and toggle a switch off. It belongs to SpaceX. We don't touch it. So. Um, uh, I think no matter what, I think the next flight is what uh, next summer, if I'm correct. He the, he hedged guess. right. He hedged around on that question. He said, uh, you know, middle of next year, and then he hedged it and said, well, you know, next year during the year we'll we're looking for this next flight uh, with a shortened test program. Yeah. So who knows? I mean, there's there's been delays to get to this launch. That just happened, so you can expect that will be the case uh, in 2011, and uh, we'll see. Indeed. Just one thing we, we, we just didn't touch on a little bit. I'll, I'll touch on it now real quick. Um, the, the flight itself, um, it, or should I say the, the launch itself, uh, I think it showed uh, some very good uh, due diligence in, on SpaceX's part. Um, as you know, they, the, the launch computers shut down the engines and so on um, as they were going in he pretty heavy deep into the terminal count. And um, I think it, SpaceX figured out what it was, reset the clock, and uh, went forward. So I think, again, that, that shows they're rather agile. They can uh, you know, work out problems and, uh, on the ground and uh, deal with uh, you know any type of curveballs that their technology throws at them, and uh, again they, they they did a, a magnificent job dealing with that. So again, you know, hats off. One of the if I believe Mark the next clip that we we kind of collected from the the press conference, one of the questions that were were asked was about uh, uh, the COTS program as it relates to the the budget. As we reported here a few weeks ago. Uh, a study was done by a presidential panel. I think Erskine Bowles was a member of that panel. Um, and uh, uh, one of the recommendations from that uh, panel was that, uh, um, I believe it was recommendation number 24, as we discussed it, uh, was to cut funding for commercial space. Um, and uh, Elon Musk was asked a question uh, with reference to, uh, to that and uh, what he thought about uh, uh, that particular report. So, Mark, if you want, if, uh, you want to go ahead and uh, run that for us. Um, not long ago, the Deficit Reduction Committee was talking about maybe it may be a good idea to lower uh, the deficit by not funding um, commercial spaceflight. And given that everyone here is talking about what a great public-private partnership that was, I was wondering if that you thought the success of today's mission um, was another reason to rethink that. The, the, the recommendation to cut commercial crew was, was ultimately not in the, the final published uh, report, so they, they, they got rid of that when they realized that uh, they were completely wrong. Um, the, uh, the, cutting commercial crew would not decrease the deficit, it would increase the deficit. Um, and uh, it would also mean that there would be no American access to space. So, uh, yeah, any, any politician who, who wishes to increase the, the deficit and uh, not have American access to space, go ahead and cut. Um, 
but I think they, I think they were just misled. And I don't know by whom, but I think they were just unfortunately were given bad information, um, which they then eventually realized was bad information, which is why it didn't make it into the final report. As much as I hate to say this, he's absolutely correct. I think you know pulling the plug on this um, is the wrong thing to do. Uh, it's already you know yesterday proved. Um, well, as record as we record this, it's December 9th, and and the flight occurred uh, yesterday. Um, this uh, this flight uh, demonstrated that uh, uh, the monies that were spent or invested thus far were worth it because the thing, you know, the dragon uh, performed as advertised. So, uh, um, and to uh, abandon commercial space at this point would mean we may have a little bit of a, more of a, a gap between the end of the shuttle program and uh, when when the United States itself can launch uh, crew into, uh, into orbit. Okay, the, the, I guess the next, uh, the next clip we've got, Mark, is a little bit of a history lesson, is it not? Yeah, a little perspective. Uh, the past as relates to the present and uh, with the SpaceX twist, of course, and that is interesting to, to think about. I think Alan said this as well. I think it's, it's really, it really vindicates the, this model, you know, this, this, this public-private partnership model, um, and, uh, and, and shows that uh, taking this, the commercial approach to uh, spaceflight, uh, you know, works just as well in spaceflight as it does uh, in airflight uh, or, you know, in other, in, in other arenas. Um, I think one of the best analogies for the COTS program is actually the, the airmail program back in the day. Um, that was a huge boost. Uh, it really got the, uh, the uh, American aviation industry going um, when, when the post office, um, uh, instead of doing its own planes, um, said, look, we just got a job to do. We've got to get things from one, to one place to another. Let's put it out to bid. Um, and it resulted in just an explosion of innovation um, and uh, uh, big improvements in technology and operational uh, capability. Um, and I think um, that was really the dawn of the, uh, uh, the, the aviation, you know, uh, aviation in America, where, where aviation went from being like this thing that you might uh, do a little joyride on or, or only, only a very rich person could do to today, where aviation is accessible to almost everyone. Um, and um, I think, I think uh, this, the, the COTS program historically will be seen in a similar light. I just want to make a, just one quick remark. I think we're, we're beyond now. After today, we're beyond the if, you know, is it possible? And the answer is, of course, it's possible. We did it. And, uh, and now we can move forward, get some stuff done. Yeah, that's not exactly an alien analogy. I've heard that used uh, several times. Um, this is, you know, it, it's sort of an analogy directly out of the, uh, the old uh, National Space Society playbook. I mean, they, they kind of look. Um, that particular organization kind of sort of looks at at uh, at commercial space in that that way. I mean, we were looking at that as early as as the, the as the mid '80s, uh, from what I can remember. And uh, uh, so it, it's not a not an alien uh, way of looking at the uh, looking at things. I thought it was kind of a neat analogy, though. It it uh, it kind of sums up uh, where we're at right now. The times are a-changing. Indeed. Um, indeed they are. Um, one, 
Oh boy. Um, one thing that I'm I'm kind of thinking about though um, is that uh, and and guys, if if I'm if I'm remembering this wrong, please let me know. Um, one thing that kind of got under my skin a little bit, and Mark, we had this discussion uh, pre-show uh, where I, we both kind of figured uh, Elon Musk was sort of maneuvered into uh, bringing this up a little bit during that uh, that line of questioning um, about um, about the uh, the congressional decision uh, to possibly cut funding for commercial space. I should add that NASA has only spent about what. Um, I may be quoting this wrong from the Monday press conference, but I believe the investment so far has been $278 million on the part of NASA and uh, $600 million on the part of SpaceX for, for uh, to get them to where they are now. But uh, I think Musk, uh, Elon Musk kind of used the, used the platform a little bit to dig at Orion um, uh, because I, I think this, uh, SpaceX obviously sees uh, the, the Orion uh uh, crew exploration vehicle as a as a direct competitor to them to them, and he made uh, uh, inferences that uh, the uh, the reentry that they performed um, on uh, uh, yesterday was uh, similar that to that of a lunar uh, reentry uh, or some, or an interplanetary reentry, and he kind of alluded to the fact that you know Orion can't do that. The Dragon can do things that Orion can't. Um, Okay, all well and good, but you know, with, with all due respect, the Orion is also built to withstand that kind of uh, that kind of reentry as well. And uh, you know, I, I I could be wrong on that one, but you know, it was initially designed to be a you know a lunar a lunar vehicle, uh, a lunar taxi. So. Um, to say that, that the Orion couldn't withstand that kind of reentry, um, I think may be wrong. I kind of wish I had some uh, folks uh, from the Orion program here to talk about that and, and uh, talk about what Mr. Musk said. But uh, um, I thought uh, you know, it was kind of interesting in, in that in the beginning you're congratulating NASA and, and toward the middle of the conference you're kind of sort of uh, uh, doing what Sarah Palin did to that halibut. Um, <laughs> beating it to death. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I just thought it, it might have been the wrong platform to, to go into that, you know, anything you can do, I can do better routine. But uh, um, I think it kind of took away from, from, from the importance of the day. But if, if anybody else is going to make comments about that. Yeah, maybe to some extent, but realize that he represents a business. And that's what's really different about all this. And uh, it's part of the business world to say that your product is better than the competition's. And even though he refers to uh, the the NASA is is given them a, a great deal of assistance, and they couldn't have done it without him, he also made the statement, and I I kind of chuckled at this. He said, "To the degree that you use legacy components, you inherit legacy cost structure." And again, another another poke at the difference between their costs and and NASA's for for operations that they've had for decades. But yeah. I would I would like to point out we're not we're not talking apples and and apples we're talking apples and oranges or whatever. But you know here's a Dragon capsule that can carry how much 
compared to a space shuttle that can carry, you know, how much more? So I don't yeah. think the comparisons hold up. Yeah, I agree. I think I think you know, um, it, I don't I don't think so either. Um, ditto with Orion as well. Um, you have to remember too. I, I know what 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 Mr. Musk is doing. He's trying to see if he can get uh, a dragon used for. Uh, uh, for an interplanetary mission or a return to the moon flight, um, rather than just being, you know, a uh, a uh, low Earth orbit ferry, but um, you know, and he sees Orion as a direct competitor to that. But it it just should be interesting to see how how the whole thing eventually really does play out, because I think Orion is still going to happen, and uh, the heavy lift vehicle is still going to happen. The 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 house passed. Uh, Past the uh, eighteen point, you know, eighteen um, point nine million dollar NASA budget um, just last night. So, um, we'll just see how all this plays out. I've got a uh, comment as we wind up our discussion on SpaceX that I'd like to throw in. Uh, fortunately and unfortunately, um, I did get to Kennedy Space Center on launch day, but unfortunately. It was actually uh, after the Dragon capsule had landed and they were having their press conference. So I did get to sit in for a bit of the press conference and observe uh, Alan Lindemoyer, Gwen Shotwell, and Elon Musk, uh, you know, via the, uh, the satellite video link that he had. And they were all, you know, quite friendly, very cordial, very um, conversational at the points when when that took place that didn't necessarily show up on camera and after the press conference I followed uh, uh, Alan Lindemoyer and Gwen Shotwell and a couple other people that were with them you know out of the press site and down the parking lot and they were talking about well uh, where are we headed from here uh, who do you need to talk to and they were talking together as as associates and and teammates would so you know, even though, even though there is some uh, some comments about uh, what SpaceX can do and cost less and and et cetera, they are working together as a as a team and a partnership. And Mr. Lindemoyer made the statement, uh, I believe, at the end of the press conference. He said, "As much as this partnership is learning from NASA, I think there are things that we can learn from SpaceX." Indeed, I'm glad that uh, you know again the partnership part of that has been emphasized because that's part again this that's part and part of all of this you know new way of doing business um, that NASA essentially becomes a partner with uh, with these folks and uh, uh, not just a, not just a customer. All right, once again, hats off to SpaceX on their successful flight. Now, the next topic. Actually, one thing that's interesting here in my town just recently is that uh, there have been major warnings in the arsenic level in our water. Arsenic is a chemical that is poisonous to all known forms of life. That is, until now. NASA scientists have discovered out in California that there is a form of life that not only can live on, but thrives on arsenic, which is poisonous to all other living beings, which completely can change the way that we look at life as we search for life in our universe. So pretty interesting, and uh, pretty interesting things that are going along with this subject, correct? 
Yeah, Sawyer. Um, the uh, first, the, the hoopla that uh, that surrounded um, the announcement first off was just absolutely outrageous. Uh, there were rumors flying around right and left that uh, NASA was going to go ahead and announce that they found life elsewhere. Um, you know, there was some rumor flying around about uh, uh, Titan. There was some rumor flying around about an, another moon, Rhea. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, um, at one point Europa was even in the mix in some circles. Um, but the, 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 the press just had a field day with this, and, and ultimately, and it just really, really, I thought, convoluted the whole message. All the, the press release announcing the whole thing said that um, that they were going to make an announcement that ha- could have some implication um, on the search for life elsewhere. And um, it was reasonably vague enough to, I guess, allow... Um, all this wild speculation to occur. Um, when the press conference started, uh, I guess the, the, one of the primary researchers, researchers excuse me, uh, Felisa Wolf-Simon, who, by the way, got her PhD out of uh, Rutgers here in New Jersey. I thought I'd put a local spin in, in there a little bit. Um, was the one who, who, who made the uh, you know, the, the announcement basically saying that uh, you know, there are five uh, chemicals responsible for life. One of them is, is phosphate, and they apparently found a microorganism that swaps phosphate for arsenic. And uh, uh, that has, again, some implications when you're, you're kind of looking for life elsewhere, that life might be more diverse and more... Um, more, more, just incredible than we can really ever, ever imagine. Well, um, the, the the findings uh, have come under fire a little bit. Um, there's one uh, uh, thing I'm looking at here, uh, dated uh, yesterday uh, from Yahoo News, um, the, the lookout section. And we'll put the uh, this in the show notes. Um, Essentially, the, the findings have come under really, really some some really big, big time uh, issues here. Um, there was one microbiologist mentioned in the article from the University of British Columbia, Rosie Redfield, who uh, posted a really, really detailed, scathing critique of the uh, of, of of the paper um, out on her blog, and we'll, we'll throw a link to that as well on the site. Um, she pointed out that uh, um, when the researchers uh, removed the DNA from the bacteria that they were looking at for examination, um, she says that they didn't take the necessary steps, and I'm quoting directly from the article here, to wash away other types of molecules. And that means, according to critics, that the arsenic may have been merely clinging to the bacteria's DNA for just, you know, basically along for the ride. Uh, without really being ingrained into it. So um, that's one point of controversy. Um, Another uh, individual from the University of Colorado, uh, uh, a biology professor by the name of uh, Shelley uh, Culpley, said basically that the paper shouldn't have even been published. Um, NASA gave um, one of the primary researchers, I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name, um, 
some airtime on NASA television. I guess it was the be- uh, the uh, end of last week uh, to sort of make his case a little bit. And um, if anybody's interested, that is also on the NASA YouTube channel. If anybody wants to go ahead and take a look at that. Um, but he gave a compelling reason or compelling um, argument for his his uh, uh, for the theory. Um, where is this going to go? Who knows? Um, it this is still going to have to go ahead and and withstand uh, the rigorous of, the rigors of scrutiny, and that's I guess one of the one of the big uh, big pluses of science that uh, it goes ahead and rigorously tests any new theory before it becomes accepted. So uh, we'll just see how all this goes um, and what the future holds for this particular theory, um, and uh, just uh, just see how all this goes. Amazing how much controversy there is over a little bit of arsenic. If you want, you can have some. I have in my water, as I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, it is kind of amazing, but again, they'll 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 get the they'll get to the bottom of of, of it and, and see what. Uh, what uh, uh, the microbes are really, really doing. Um, but with this, a hats off to NASA in two things. Number one, actually discovering this. And number two, the hype that they made about it. I mean, I have not seen that much hype for something NASA-related uh, unless it has to do with UFOs or faking the moon landing, which we Unfor- didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's kind of where where this thing was almost going. Um, with the UFOs thing, I mean, I saw some really, really whacked out stories out there prior to the con- to the news conference, um, and uh, it was just—I mean, it was really getting borderline insane out there. It really was. Um, you'd you'd mention that, and, and um, somebody actually said, and I'm going to quote again from that Yahoo article: um, "Why did?" NASA scientists make such a big deal out of a discovery that, you know, according to critics, may be a little, little questionable. Um, and uh, a uh, another biology professor from UC Davis, uh, John Roth, said that uh, he said, "quote I suspect that NASA may be so desperate for a positive story that they didn't look for any serious advice." From from DNA or even microbiology people, close quote. And again, we'll post this the, this on up on the show notes. But uh, um, you know, again, I'll I, I disagree with, with with Dr. Roth there. I think NASA's got enough positive stuff going on that they don't need this um, to to go ahead and, and cause a stir. But I think it's it's just an interesting little deal. We'll see if it stands up to scrutiny and uh, see how this all goes. And if I could just state something, I have gotten some questions actually from some listeners asking about the show notes. Just so you know, you can access the show notes if you're listening to this um, either through our website or through Astronomy FM. You can check out the show notes at TalkingSpaceOnline.com and selecting the episode under the podcast episode uh, list on the left. This is under 2010 podcast. Or if you are listening to this by iTunes, on the actual, on your iTunes library, there's a little lowercase i in a circle. If you click on that, you will also have access to the show notes and all the links that we are discussing. Alrighty then, next topic that we're going to be discussing is something that's been in space for just a little bit of time, and that was 
The U.S. military's X-37B, which this last week successfully landed at Vandenberg Air Force Base, which was surprisingly originally once going to be a shuttle landing site. However, this unmanned space vehicle landed after over 200 days orbiting the Earth. What it exactly did is still classified at this point. However, we do know that the mission landed safely and they're planning a second mission in 2011. Anything else that I'm missing? No, but it, the X-37B initially started out its life as a NASA critter and uh, was uh, funding for it, unfortunately ran out, was cut. Um, I think this shows the wisdom is possibly um, expanding its operation, maybe even getting a piloted version of it. And uh, who knows, we might be looking at uh, um, this thing actually becoming sort of a small, another small alternative um, for getting to and from low Earth orbit. So uh, it should be interesting. Also, it should be interesting to see what uh, what uh, this expanded, uh, um, expanding the operating envelope, as, as, as the Air Force said, is going to be all about. We still don't know what it was doing up there. It was launched in, in April of this year, came back down just last week. Um, and uh, uh, we'll just see how this whole, this whole thing develops. But I hope some folks in, in the commercial sector are watching this program very closely. Um, I, I, I personally think this is the way we should be going um, with uh, sort of building on the shuttle technology, at least for low Earth orbit. Speaking of watching, uh, you know, I remember noticing over the months that amateur astronomers were watching for the X-37B and uh, enough of them spotted it to where they determined what its orbit was. Problem was, occasionally they lost it and so the spacecraft was actually changing position and maneuvering around so it had some pretty uh, active capabilities on orbit. It wasn't just uh, going around for with nowhere to go. Interesting. interesting. Yeah, very interesting, Mark, that the thing was able to go ahead and, and translate and do other things and change orbits and, and so on. So obviously this thing's kind of flexible. Um, and I don't know if it's been mentioned, I believe there's a second one under construction, and uh, it's going to be part of the Air Force's inventory uh, as they get out of the uh, the test phase of their program, I think. Yeah, that one's scheduled to launch sometime next year. Reusable, too, huh? Yes, sir. Completely reusable. In fact, I'm looking at a photograph of it right now, and it kind of has a very familiar look to it. <laughs> what? Oh. Not like any other uh, manned vehicle that we've possibly used. Oh, yeah, something that might be actually sitting out there on pad 39B and 39A right now. 39B is under, under demolition. Duh. don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea. I do know that this is the second ever vehicle, though, that was landed autonomously. Yeah. Trivia uh, question. Who knows the first? Buran. You got it. The Russian space shuttle. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. So this is, uh, um, again, it's kind, it's kind of cool that this thing could actually go ahead and land itself. And uh, I think the shuttle now is able to do that. But um, uh, I'm not sure it, it can do it completely. something we'll have to look into that's for sure yeah i'll have to do some homework on that 
As long as you do it, I've got enough homework. <laughs> Alrighty then, with, la with that, I believe, Mark, you have one last thing, and then we'll wrap it up. Alright, as, uh, as we get into the uh, time of year when folks like to shop, uh, got something to, for folks to put on their shopping list. Although it's not going to be delivered right away, but there's a book that is being uh, sold, I guess, as a pre-publication sale. And it's through the www.shopnasa.com website. And it's a space shuttle book. It's a 500-plus page book. Um, Bill Gerstenmeyer makes the statement that it's informative, beautifully done. It captures the passion of those who devoted their energies to more than three decades of the shuttle program. The executive editor is Wayne Hale that we've talked about on this show. And it's got a wide range of contributors from the first shuttle crew, flight directors, engineers, program managers. Uh, it's pre-publication -pre sale through December 31st. Uh, it's slated to be released in March. They've got soft cover and hard cover. So take a look at shop www.shopshopnasa.com. And Dean, I remember Wayne Hale just before he left NASA was sort of plugging that on on, on the NASA blog um, that he had written. Which, if if anybody gets a chance to go ahead and, and go through it, and uh, you know, definitely put uh, uh, his current blog um, in your. Uh, in your favorites there, um, because uh, you might learn a couple of things, and uh, I'm I'm glad that it was somebody like Wayne Hale that was the uh, uh, the the prime editor uh, on a book like this. So it, I've I've already ordered it, so I'm 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 looking forward to seeing uh, to seeing what it looks like in reading it. Indeed, hopefully we'll be able to have him on the show. Sir, you've read my mind. <laughs> Can I try and read your mind one more time? I'm reading that this show is just about over and that we'd like to thank the audience for listening to us. Darn you. Am I right? <laughs> Darn you're good. <laughs> thank you. Well, with that, I'll say thank you as well, Gene McCulloch, for joining us. Thanks, Sawyer, and thanks, everybody, for putting up with the voice here and uh, hope you enjoyed the show tonight. I know I, I had a blast with you guys. No problem, and we were able to hear you, so that's good enough. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Well, Sawyer, got to tell you, you may not be the uh, the great Karnak, but you're pretty good. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to what you got to tell us about next week. Oh, I'll keep predicting. Now, we apologize for the slight delay in getting this episode out. However, due to certain circumstances, including the launch of SpaceX's Falcon 9 and other circumstances... We were able to put this show out at least and get you some good news on SpaceX and some other fun stories. So, uh, can you read my mind, Gene, of what I'm going to say next? I'll let you go ahead and say it, sir. Alrighty. I bet you you're predicting it out there if you've listened before. Whether you have or haven't, I'm going to say have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. <laughs>